So we're on a, a timeline in the Bible. You know how the Bible works. If you're in the New Testament, you have things that God spoke to the churches, which stand for the churches today. When you turn to the New Testament, it's almost as if 2,000 years have never happened. The Word speaks to us. You read Romans or Colossians or the teaching of the Lord Jesus in the Gospels and you say, that's, that's to me. It's not so in the Old Testament. There's a development from Genesis through to Malachi. You're on a timeline of different things and different people and different situations as you move through towards the end of the Old Testament. Although we're in Nehemiah, we're actually almost at the end of the Old Testament timeline. So we understand that the people came out of Egypt, they fought and conquered the Holy Land, they established themselves in Jerusalem, the city of God, they built the temple of the Lord, and it seemed they were living under the blessing of God, with God's chosen king, in God's chosen place, with God's appointed means of worship. But all the while through, there's this persistent problem as you read through those early books of the history of Israel, and that is that people keep preferring other gods all the way through, turning away from God to false gods, to invented gods, to idols, gods made of wood and metal and stone, gods that can neither see nor hear nor answer. Why would you prefer these gods to the living God? Well, we can't answer that question on their behalf. As you read through those books, see what you think and what their motives were. But this is not something, of course, that God can tolerate. He is a jealous God. There is a good jealousy as well as a bad jealousy. And God's jealousy is a good jealousy, but it's a jealousy. He's jealous for the worship and love of his people. And these Israelites, his people he brought out of Egypt, they, they provoked him in this way again and again and again by turning aside to worship statues and wooden things and all the rest of it. And you can read through the Old Testament how this went on through the centuries and how God sent prophets to warn them and tell them what to expect but they didn't take the warnings and so you get through to the 500s BC well 600 BC 589 BC finally God brings these warnings to pass and he abolishes everything that had been set up in his name he destroys his own temple he destroys his own holy city he sends his nation into exile. The last king in the line of David, King Zedekiah, the Babylonians capture him. They kill his sons in front of him. So that's the end of that world line. They kill his sons and then they put out his eyes so it's the last thing he ever sees and they take him away in chains. And that whole nation, that whole people of God, that whole divine economy that he set up, he brings it to ruin as he said he would through the prophets because the people persistently rejected him. And for 70 years, there's nothing there. There's no Jerusalem, there's no temple, there's no holy worship of God, there's no sacrifices, there's nothing. In Jerusalem, the city of God, is rubble. And so after 70 years, strangely in terms of history, rather unusually for an emperor, the emperor Cyrus, the Persian emperor, who's conquered the whole Babylonian empire now, Cyrus, the Persians are the top dogs. Cyrus says... All of you in all my empire who come from different countries, you may go back to your homeland. And the book of Ezra tells us this specifically includes 
the Jewish people in exile. You can go back now to Jerusalem. You can rebuild it. And Cyrus even offers them money and financial support for the supplies that they need and the workmen and so on. But this is 70 years later. And large numbers of those who've been dispersed from the Jewish nation stay where they are. They've settled down. They've got homes. They've got a life in their new environment. But a few go back. 42,000 initially return out of all those hundreds of thousands who've gone into exile. 42,000 return in the book of Ezra to start to rebuild the whole thing. And if there's one thing they've learnt, it is this. You shall not worship false gods. Their whole history has taught them, you shall not worship false gods. If you're going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the people of God and the nation of God and the city of God and the worship of God, it must be the Lord alone whom you worship. And they come back with this great sense of past failures and the determination to put things right and do things differently. And they begin the rebuilding process that you can read about in such books as Ezra and Nehemiah and also Haggai and Zechariah and so on. You can see how they rebuilt, first of all, the temple and then the walls of the city. That's the story of Nehemiah. But this wasn't just a construction project. Because of their recent past, it was a spiritual renewal. It was a moment of returning to the Lord. And these people who came back evidently came with a great seriousness about the things of God. And the determination that they would be his people in more than just name. They would seek the Lord. What we have in Nehemiah 8 described to us is, really I think you could say in some senses, a day of revival. And you can compare it to the great days in our history when people stood up and preached to crowds. And in one sermon, perhaps 100, 200, 500 people would be converted. Many people would be broken emotionally. Other people would be full of joy and rejoicing in the Lord as he worked powerfully through the preaching of his word. Notice in your, in your announcements there's a prayer meeting for revival. And um, this is a very good thing to pray for. Nehemiah chapter 8 gives us a little glimpse of what to expect if God answers that prayer. What sort of days we might see and what wonderful days they would be. Mm -hmm. I, I detect really four things at least to notice in this chapter. The first is the people's unusual desire for the Lord. Uh, I beg your pardon, unusual desire for the word and a faithful ministry of the word, secondly. A great heart stirring from the word and a thorough obedience to the word. An unusual desire for the word brings these people together. Faithful ministry of the word is what you get from Ezra and the others on that platform. A great heart stirring from the word, great emotions. This isn't a dry exercise. And in the end, a thorough obedience to the word. And there are things we can learn from all these points. So these people wanted to hear what God had to say. They realized if they were going to turn to the Lord, then the Lord must speak to them. They needed a message from God. They more than needed it, they desired it. And as a group of people, as a collective, they gather together in the open square. 
and um, as they gather together it seems the initiative is theirs this is a, a movement of people this isn't something that's been led or directed they tell Ezra to bring out the book of the law in verse 2 this is something that people are calling for it's not as if Ezra and the others are saying right now you must listen to some preaching and everybody says oh okay then they're saying bring this out we've got to hear this stuff so Ezra brings out the book of the law and the whole assembly is there we're told in verse 2 men and women and everyone who can hear with understanding going down into quite young children I guess as well and as he reads from the word we're told in verse 3 the people are attentive <coughs> they're listening their minds are not wandering they realize this is something they must have they must hear this and that's all the more impressive when we realize that he starts in the morning and he's still going at midday and it's all the more impressive when we realize that spontaneously as he brought out the, the scrolls to start reading they've all stood up again nobody told them to do this it just seems natural to them here is the word of the Lord so they stand and they stay standing all through those hours as the book is read and they listen with very great attention to this reading of the word of the Lord notice that they're quite clear back in verse 1 again that the message of the Lord is in the book of the law of Moses they're not saying to Ezra has the Lord given you a word for us what is the message for today they're not saying to Ezra tell us something new for our new situation they're not saying to him surely we need something extra beyond what we've already received no they're saying that old book those old scrolls hundreds of years old that's what we need that's the Lord's message for us now that's where we went wrong that's the stuff that we didn't keep before we're determined to put it right so read to us again that old familiar message it's not familiar enough to us we don't know it well enough bring it out and explain it to us so we can get a handle on it and begin to put it into practice very good role model for us in that because that's exactly our situation isn't it we have an ancient book 2000 years old now but we believe that through it God speaks to us today we're not looking for a new message or a different message or an updated message or a revised message we realize that God has spoken and his word is our guide sufficient for all our needs as the Lord Jesus Christ himself put it in the Gospels heaven and earth may pass away heaven and earth will pass away but my words will never pass away they are our guide for this life and for eternity so the first point then this desire for the word the first point for us to apply to ourselves and take to heart is to cultivate in ourselves and try to develop the same desire an appetite a spiritual appetite for God's truth for God's word a sense that this is something we must have we need it <coughs> now it's true that this word that Ezra read was the law of God it's called that in verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 3 if you've got it open in front of you and verse 7 and verse 8 and verse 9 and in verse 18 at the end of the chapter the book of the law of God so in some ways this message contrasts a little bit with the New Testament gospel of Jesus Christ 
I don't want to overstate that because the Bible is one and it has one message, but there's a little bit of a change of emphasis, if I can put it that way, as we pass from Moses to Christ, from law to grace, from command to promise. So we have a message that is not so much do this and live, as the law was, strictly on its own terms, but come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. <coughs> we have, in other words, a message for sinners, suitable exactly for our spiritual needs, a message that doesn't condemn us, but a message that shows us Christ, the Savior. How much more, how much more should this be our desire and our delight? How much more should we say, give me this word then, give me this message, let me have it. I need to hear it again. You know that in the scriptures we're told, well, let's look this up actually, um, in case there are one or two who don't know. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. I'm sure some of you will know this first, but perhaps if you haven't come across it before, it's always good to see these things again, isn't it? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, if you can find it in your Bibles or on your phones or whatever you've got there. That, I think, would be helpful. As newborn babies, he says to us, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. He's not saying you are newborn babies. He recognizes that you might have been in the Lord for many years. But he's saying be like a newborn baby. Well, in what way does a newborn baby desire milk? Some of you are parents or grandparents. And uh, it occurs to me that newborn babies are not always very polite in this kind of thing. They're not very, uh, well, if there's no trouble for you, would you, would you mind very much? I mean, uh, at 3 a.m., I must have milk. I must have milk. And the parents say, oh, oh, again, I must have it. And that's the desire and the determination of the newborn baby to have milk and it should be a model for us then how much do you want to hear what God has to say concerning Christ his son is the appetite there among those of us who are older who've heard these things many times before how many Sundays have you been here in this place hearing the preaching do you still hunger for the truth as it is in Christ as you once did it was new and exciting once, wasn't it? When we were newborn babes in Christ, it was all new. There was so much to discover in the scriptures. It was all exciting. One Peter says this, isn't that wonderful? Now we've been through it, we've heard it, but do we want to hear it again? Is the desire there? Well, when the Lord sends a time of refreshing or even a time of revival, one of the things we'll find is that his people will grow greatly in desire for the word. May he make it so. Well, the Lord, in his wisdom, stirred up that desire, but he also provided for it. Secondly, in Nehemiah chapter 8, we see a faithful ministry of the word. A faithful ministry of the word. There was a platform in this, in this square. The people were standing and raised above them were Ezra. And then on his right hand, one, two, three, four, five, six people. And six people on his left hand. And Ezra read and he explained what he read. 
And then there were certain other people who helped with this as well in verse 7. Possibly these people, uh, Jeshua and the others in verse 7, possibly they went down among the crowds and, and spoke to them in groups and answered questions and taught them in this way, supplementing the ministry from the front. We're not clear about that, but they evidently helped in some way with the teaching and understanding of the book of the law of God. And actually in these verses, understanding is the key theme. Ezra and the others help them to understand. A faithful ministry of the word is a ministry of instruction so that people know and come to see things that they hadn't seen before. Just look at that with me to make sure we're saying what's right here. Look at verse 2, for example. Ezra taught all who could hear with understanding. And he read it in verse 3 with those who could understand. And in verse 7, Jeshua and the others helped the people to understand the law. This is what it's all about. And verse 8, they read distinctly and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And then verse 12 says the same thing a bit later on. And they were so, they were told to rejoice because they understood the words. And then in verse 13 also, the same point is made as they gather again on the second day in order to further understand the words of the law. So this is a faithful ministry then to look for in a preacher or pastor or a Sunday school teacher. Is it first of all something that makes clear what God has said in the Bible? And I find that people not always asking this question about the preaching they get. They might ask, well, uh, did the preaching make the hairs on the back of my neck stand up with excitement? Nothing wrong with that. But is there this element of instruction, truth explained, so that you could say, listening to it, as these people could say in the water square, by the water gate, he told us what the book said. What he said came from the book and we could see the connection. It wasn't his message. It was the message he read. All he did was explain it. And so if anybody argued with it and said afterwards, I don't like that, I don't agree with that, I don't think that's right, Ezra could simply say, well, are you arguing with me or are you arguing with God? Is your quarrel with me or are you saying that God in his word has got it wrong because all I've done is bring you that message from the word? It's a tremendously important point, this connection, isn't it, between preaching and the Bible. And the clearer and plainer that connection is, the more helpful the ministry, especially when the preacher is saying new things and different things and things that are perhaps hard to accept, as Ezra was having to say to them, pointing out to them all the ways they've fallen short and all the ways they disobeyed God in the past. Not easy to hear. Very important for them to see. It was actually the scroll of Moses that was bringing the message and Ezra was simply making it plain to them. And um, I wonder if we realize how much we need this kind of expository ministry today in our churches. Consecutive teaching from the Bible. 
there are people I admire who, who preach perhaps a verse at a time and they bring God's word and it's faithful and it's good and it's helpful but in terms of a week-to-week -week ministry to a congregation there's something to be said isn't there for somebody who will say well this week we're doing Romans chapter 1 next week chapter 2 chapter 3 or perhaps break it up smaller than that but so that you can say the preacher isn't bringing us all kinds of amazing things from his own mind he's just clearly showing us what the scriptures say and it's even been said of certain of these expository preachers well you could read the Bible and see the message there for yourself but for a preacher like Ezra that's a compliment he would be pleased to be told that yes he said that was my job I opened the scroll and read it and explained it and if you could have seen it for yourself good for you that's all I was trying to do there's a great power as we'll see <laughs> and a great importance to this kind of exposition of the scriptures done whether in the Old Testament or among the churches of today and this is at the heart of this day of revival this day of refreshment but here's a, here's a question for you <laughs> this is one I've heard and I've challenged it a little bit actually um, did these people in Ezra's day appreciate the ministry have you heard that said I've challenged that a little bit and the reason I challenge that phrase it's often heard in our circles but the reason I challenge it is I'm not sure it's what the ministry is there for I'm not sure it's what preaching is designed to do to be appreciated and it doesn't seem to be the right word for what happens here in Ezra chapter in Nehemiah chapter 8 because we see instead of appreciation that the ministry there broke their hearts it broke them as Ezra went through all the things from the law of God the things they hadn't done and their ancestors hadn't done and the ways they'd failed God as Ezra went through all these things we see for example in verse 9 at the end of the verse all the people wept they were crying as they heard these things standing there in the square as Ezra went through these things line by line they're crying and weeping and they have to be told not to grieve because they're cut to the heart by this do not be grieved they're told in verse 11 they're convicted this is what we say today they're convicted of their sins it just seems a little shallow perhaps I could say to us whether they appreciated it it, it devastated them they're in deep emotional distress and this is always a mark of these great days of revival if you're praying for revival this is the kind of thing you're praying for that the Word of God will, will melt people's hearts in this way and show them how far short they've fallen and how they've sinned against God and where they stand with God for example George Whitfield the the great preacher of the 18th century um, he started preaching in his early 20s and he preached in Church of England churches because he was ordained Church of England clergyman but his, and his message was startling you must be born again that was his great theme he preached again and again but it was too startling for many of the church authorities they banned him from one church and another church and another church and this pushed him to think about going out to preach in the open air this and the fact that of course a lot of people didn't go to church so he thought well they won't come in so I'll go out to them and he started by the mines 
by Kingswood in Bristol. He stood up on a raised place. There was perhaps a hundred people around coming and going, and he began to preach. And as he preached, this was so unusual that people were drawn in and people gathered round to hear what he had to say. And he describes in his journal how these miners, you could see the streaks of tears down their faces, black faces with coal dust, with lines as these tears were running down because their hearts were broken. And they were so moved by what he said that they came back the next day with more and more. And by the weekend, there were 10,000 people there to hear him because the word of God melted their hearts and stirred them up and gave deep emotions as he preached to them. But it wasn't all sorrow when Whitfield preached and it's not all sorrow here in Nehemiah 8. And it's rather a strange thing, isn't it? Why, why did the people have to be told to rejoice? They're told not to mourn and weep in verse 9. They're told to go on their way and eat fine food and um, drink sweet drinks in verse 10. They're told to rejoice. Do not be grieved. So they go on their way and eat and drink and rejoice greatly because they've understood the words. Well, I think the reason for that in Nehemiah is that they're about to have a festival, a festival of booths. It talks about that in the second half of the chapter. The festival of booths was commanded in Leviticus, which obviously Ezra had just read to them. And it's a celebration of the Exodus. They make little shelters on the flat roofs of their houses and down in the square. And they live in these shelters, these booths, or these tabernacles for a week to remember when they went out from Egypt. And it's a time of rejoicing. Yes, you're sad because of your sins and your failures, but be glad in what the Lord has done for you. Be glad as you look back all these generations to the Exodus. Be glad that this is your God who did these great things. And the word of God, if it comes with power, will produce the same effects today. Yes, a grief over sin, but a great rejoicing to hear of the Saviour who takes away sin and guilt. A great rejoicing that there's a remedy, a God-given remedy for sin. A great rejoicing as people discover that they can trust him and that all the problem between them and God is gone. So it's right, yes, to grieve and be cut to the heart and yes, also to rejoice and be glad. Lord Jesus said in his parables that uh, the person who finds him is like a person who finds buried treasure in a field. And they're so happy that they'll just sell everything they've got to buy that field and have that treasure. Or a merchant who finds uh, an outstanding rare pearl. It's so beautiful, he must have it. And when he has it, he's full of joy. And that's what it is when a person finds Christ. And so, here in Nehemiah 8, and much more in our own Christian experience, yes, there was a desire for the word, a faithful ministry of the word, and a great heart stirring from the word. And that, I think, is something to pray for. When we pray for revival, when we pray for ourselves, when we pray for our church, that the word of the Lord may move us. That we'll not only understand it, but feel it. That it will be something of the heart. Yes, of the head, yes, of the understanding, but also of the heart, as it was there 
in Nehemiah chapter 8. So what else can we say about a time of refreshing from the Lord, a day of revival such as they had in Nehemiah 8? What was it like? Well, they did come together, didn't they, with that unusual desire for the word of God and that was met by a faithful ministry and there was this tremendous heart response. But that's not enough. Even that's not enough. It's not enough to feel deeply the things of God. It must lead, and if it's genuine, it will lead to action, to repentance, to a thorough obedience to the word. So we see, as I've mentioned, as we go on through the chapter, they get together these booths. It's in direct obedience to the word. They found it written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses in verse 14, and they found it written, so they did it. They said, this is what the Lord has said, so we're going to put it into practice. Exactly what we've read, that's what we're going to do. It says that the children of Israel should dwell in these booths, and we should proclaim in the cities and so on in verse 15, and branches should be gathered. That's what it says there in the book of Moses, verse 16. That's exactly what they went out and did. They heard what the Lord had to say, and they obeyed. And that is so important, isn't it? It is essential that we reduce the word of God to practice. There's no substitute for doing what the Lord has said. Now, as I said earlier, the Lord's message to us today isn't just law. It isn't just do this and live. There are many wonderful things concerning Christ and our salvation that we hear. But where we do hear the Lord's command, we need to put it into practice, just as they did in Nehemiah's day. If you turn over a page or so in the book of Nehemiah to chapter 10, verse 29. Chapter 9, in case you're wondering what it is, is a great prayer of confession. By the time they've heard the word and prayed in response, they're ready in verse 29 of chapter 10 to enter into a curse and an oath. They join with their brothers and nobles and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and his statutes. They've heard the word preached. It's cut them to the heart. They prayed in chapter 9, and now they're saying, we will do what the Lord says. Whatever he says, we will do. What we read in this book, we will implement. We will put into practice the word of God. When I was uh, a, a new Christian, there was a, uh, an Australian who came over to preach in the UK from time to time, a man called John Chapman. He's now in glory. But as a young Christian at the minister's conference, he brought two messages that I found tremendously helpful. Messages for preachers. And he said, when you preach, you've got to do evangelism every Sunday, and you've got to preach repentance every Sunday. So what he meant is that every Sunday when you preach from the Bible, you preachers, there must be something for people who are not Christians. You don't have to preach the same sermon every Sunday. The Bible is full of stuff for people who aren't Christians, full of messages. Bring a different one each week, but make sure that you're calling on people to turn to the Lord and be saved. Evangelism every Sunday and repentance every Sunday. Every week, he told us, when you preach from the Bible, there should be a call for change. Change is essential in the Christian life. If people go away week after week, month after month from your church, you preachers, and you never call on them to change their ways or do anything different, you're failing them. 
repentance every Sunday. But that's a true challenge for the preacher, and it was. It's a true challenge for the hearers as well, isn't it? There must be change in our lives. Otherwise, what are we saying? If we go home on a Sunday night and nothing's different and there's no new resolutions and no new commitments to serve the Lord in a new and better way, what are we saying? That we're already perfect. We've already arrived, thank you very much. We're already doing everything the Lord commands. We're already living the perfect Christian life. And that can't be possible, can it? That can't be possible this side of heaven. There ought to be in the preacher's words and there ought to be in the listener's hearts resolution to do things differently. Ideally, after each sermon. Well, that's what there was when Ezra opened the scroll and read from it and preached to the people. And that's what there should be with our preachers in our churches today. There's a great danger in this, and I want to show you this just before we finish, in Ezekiel chapter 33. I want to warn you of this, because I think this is a great danger, particularly in churches where the preaching is prominent, as I know it is in your church. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 30. In a church where much is made of the preaching, there is a danger that the preaching becomes an end in itself, as it seems to have done with Ezekiel the prophet. Listen to this. As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses, and they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. That sounds good, doesn't it? They all want to hear the word of the Lord, and they're calling each other to come. It would be good if that happened in our churches, wouldn't it? It's getting fuller and fuller as people invite their friends and so on. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people, God says to Ezekiel. They hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you answer them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words but they do not do them. See what God's saying there to Ezekiel? All these people who come to listen to you, Ezekiel, they might as well be at a rock concert or something. Ezekiel, you've become part of the entertainment industry. They love to hear what you say, but they never do anything about it. They never do anything about it. And my fear is that that is too often too true of people in our churches where much is made of the preaching, much is rightly made of preaching but it needs to be reduced to obedience. People need to go home on Sundays when they've heard the preaching and say, right, I'm going to do this now. I'm going to be different now. I've got a resolution here I need to follow through. I need to put this right. I need to address this area of my life. There needs to be, as there was in Nehemiah's day, a thorough obedience to the word of God. That would certainly be a mark of any true revival, any true work of the Lord in our day as well. But we don't need to wait for a revival. We can start that now. We can say, the Lord has spoken and I will respond. But what response are we looking for this evening then? Let me go through those four points again. We saw in Ezra that the people came together with an unusual desire for the word. And I'm challenging us tonight, I'm challenging you if I may, <coughs> to cultivate an appetite for God's truth. Law and commandment, but also promise and gospel. Christ preached. Let's put aside the things that distract us. Let's put aside our phones 
and our TV programs and so on, and let's spend time ourselves in the Word of God, and let's prepare ourselves for the Sunday ministry and the Bible groups and so on that we go to, and say, I want to hear this. An unusual desire for the Word. A faithful ministry of the Word. All sorts of people preach, all sorts of people preach well, all sorts of people preach biblically, but there's a lot to be said, I put it to you, for what Ezra did here, where you just preach through consecutively what the book says. If that's a little bit hard going, sometimes it's because it stretches the understanding a bit and you have to take in new things. It can be a bit complicated. But it's how God has given us his Bible and how Ezra preached. And it's a way, the way, of bringing the Bible to the people today, I would suggest. A great heart stirring from the word. Let's expect God to touch our hearts through his word. Whether it's to break us down and help us to see our sins and failures, or whether it's to build us up with rejoicing in Christ. This shouldn't be a, a cold or insignificant thing to us, but something that moves us, grips us. <coughs> and then as I've just said, that's whatever else we do, practice a thorough obedience to the words of God. Let's pray together. Father, there's so much for us to learn from the scriptures. There's so many parts of this book that you've given to us. We need to go more deeply into it, learn. But so often, Lord, forgive us, it's, it's not something we have any great desire to do. We confess it with sadness in your presence. But we have to be honest and admit that we're not the newborn babies clamoring for the word, clamoring for the milk. We're so easily diverted with other things and distracted. Even in church when the word's preached, our minds wander. Give us that appetite, Lord, we pray. Give us pastors and preachers and teachers who can preach the word as Ezra did. Highlighting what you've said, bringing out the full counsel of God for the people of God. Father, move our hearts. Week by week as the word is preached, move our hearts. Break us down with grief over sin. As you've always done in great days of revival. And then build us up with fresh rejoicing in Christ the Savior, like those who found a great treasure. Because we found the one who delivers us from guilt and condemnation. And Lord, help us not to miss or bypass or skirt round or ignore the call to repent. Lord, where you show us what needs to change. Would you please show us how to be thorough and consistent and determined in making those changes? What you say, we will do. Where you call, we will obey. Where you instruct, we will follow. Lord, teach us not only to know and to understand and to believe, but to repent. Help us, Lord. We know we're not perfect. We know we haven't arrived in the Christian life. We know we're not the finished article. And yet so often we carry on as if we were. We're complacent. Where we should be humble and repentant. Lord, write these letters.